0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. It's good to be here to worship God together, isn't it? Amen. Yeah, there's not any better place you could be. Uh, than on a a Lord's Day to be together worshiping God. So we are grateful for it. I have a couple of announcements. Um, I thought I would uh, highlight our uh, devotional reading as well this morning. Um, If the angels were so astonished at Christ's birth, it is not surprising that man should be filled with holy wonder at the great mystery. That God should have such consideration for his fallen creatures that instead of sweeping them away with the broom of destruction, he should be, devise a wonderful scheme for their redemption, and that he should himself undertake to be their redeemer and to pay their ransom price is indeed marvelous. Probably it will seem most marvelous to you in its relation to yourself that you should be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, that God should forsake the thrones and royalties above, to suffer ignominiously below for you? If you truly know yourself, you can never see any adequate motive or reason in your own self for such a wonderful deed as this. Why should God display such love to me? You may well ask. If David when the Lord revealed to him the honors in store for him and for his family, could only say, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And th- is this the manner of man, O Lord God? If, so if David did that, what should you say? Had we been the most meritorious of individuals, and had we unceasingly kept the Lord's commands, we could not have deserved such a priceless boon as Christ's incarnation. But as we are sinners, offenders, rebels who have revolted and continually gone further and further away from God, what shall we say of this incarnate God for dying for us? What can we say but hear in his love? Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This wonder will also produce in you godly watchfulness. You will be afraid to sin against such love as this. Feeling the presence of the mighty God and the gift of his dear Son, you will put off your shoes from your feet, because the place whereon you stand is holy ground. You will be moved at the same time to a glorious hope. If Jesus has given himself to you, if he has done this marvelous thing on your behalf, You will feel that heaven itself is not too great for your expectation and that the rivers of pleasures at God's right hand are not too sweet or too deep for you to drink thereof. Who can be astonished at anything when he has once learned the mystery of the manger and the cross?
1: May God in his Son be glorified this morning in that. I invite you to turn to Esther chapter 7 this morning for our regular scripture reading. Esther chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Now on the second day at the banquet of wine the king again said to Esther What is your petition queen Esther It shall be granted to you And what is your request up to half the kingdom it shall be done Then queen Esther answered and said If I have found favor in your sight o king and if it pleases the king let my life be given let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now now Harbino, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Isn't it true, like the Proverbs often say, the fool falls into his own trap, snare? Such is the case here, as we see in Esther chapter 7. If you turn your Bibles to Luke's gospel again, please, this time in chapter
0: 6. Luke chapter 6, the first 11 verses, the title of the message today, Sabbath Controversies. One of my goals in this message is to make sure that our understanding of the Sabbath is biblical, not based on traditions of people or religious denominations, and to, by extension, evaluate our thinking on religious matters and make sure we're not living merely by tradition, but in fact honoring the Word of God in our obedience to it. So let's read in chapter 6, Luke, verse 1. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he went into the house of God and, took the, and ate the showbread and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. It was another Sabbath day, that is, another Saturday. Uh, Perhaps the Lord ministered often on Sabbath days because Other people were more available on that day. Why? Because they weren't working, right? They are working Sunday through Friday, but not on the Sabbath. They gathered at the synagogues and so on. So they were not as busy with their daily work uh, throughout the week on that day. Uh, It seems that uh, Jesus himself, by the way, was kind of a working-class fellow during his early years. Did you ever think of that? The Bible says he was a carpenter and he was the son of a carpenter. Matthew 13, the, we looked at a passage similar to that, but uh, the people in the synagogue in Nazareth said, isn't, isn't this the carpenter's son? That's Matthew 13, 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us as well? And, and we saw the same in Luke, in Luke chapter 4. Uh, but there was, he was called the carpenter himself. Uh, as was often the case in those days, he would take up the same trade as his father did and did that for a, lively, a livelihood, so to speak. Can you imagine Jesus being lazy and not working? Not at all. He would have worked in those years that uh, he was here before his public ministry supplying for himself and his family. Probably, uh, you know, as the eldest child, his dad died at some point between the time that he was 12 and 30. Somewhere in there, we don't know how long he lived, but as the eldest, he would be certainly, uh, you know, bear responsibility to help care for the family. And he had that role uh, working. But on the Sabbath, plenty of time uh, to uh, to minister to people. Now, Luke has already mentioned the Sabbath a couple of times in chapter 4, 16 and 31. uh, Jesus ministered. Uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and likewise in Capernaum. That was in Nazareth, and then likewise in Capernaum. He taught on the Sabbath regularly each week. So when it says here it happened on the second Sabbath, I'm not exactly sure which Sabbath it means. It may be that this is a second Sabbath of a particular series of Sabbaths on their religious calendar. That's the information that I found as I looked at that. They would fully understand what that meant. Um, but maybe it simply means that on the second Sabbath after the one we just discussed. It's not really that important for the context, but we do know at least that it is another Saturday upon which a controversy occurs. And you'll see why I'm mentioning Saturday along the way here as we get to the end of the message. The, uh, the situation is that the disciples are walking along in the grain fields, so obviously they're going from one place to another, and uh, perhaps there are not the kind of roads that we uh, think of today or walking paths. Perhaps there are just little walking paths that they can walk on, and they're through the midst of uh, different people's fields. And as they did this, they were picking the grain heads off the grain that was available then and rubbing it together and then getting the uh, chaff out and eating the the whole grain. So this behavior that they were doing was in accordance with the law of, uh, of eating as you were going through someone else's field. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it tells us this, verse 25, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So, no harvesting, so harvesting is different than just walking along and taking a little sampling here and there. Everybody in Israel was able to do that, regardless of the field that the um, that it was on. now why why I mean, does that offend your sensibilities at all? You know that's my grain. Well, you forgot something. It's God's grain. <laughs> you know, you planted the seed, but who gave the increase? Who sent the rain? who sent the sun? You know the nutrients in the ground and all of that, and so the, the people of Israel, naturally, because they had an understanding of where their sustenance came from, had a different approach a little bit than we would about private property. Now, there is such a thing as private property it's not all common you can't just go and harvest somebody else's grain, but walking along you know an orchard and picking a, a few grapes off the the vine or uh, you know, uh, an apple off the tree and munching on it was not considered any kind of stealing or sin in that time period, okay? The, the vast majority of the increase obviously belonged to the farmer, the, the landowner, uh, and, and all of that. I think you, you understand that, but it's interesting just to think about the different approach. There's a kind of a commonality of, of, of resources that people have because of the fact that we just live on this earth that God has given to us you know, like we breathe all the same air, right? You can't say that's my air because it's over my, you know, my acre of property. <laughs> it's my air, <laughs> you know. It's everybody's to, to share, and that's why you can't just trash it, you know, pollute it and all of that sort of thing. It's good stewardship demands that. But in any case, uh, the, the, the scriptures are clear there in uh, Deuteronomy that that was in accordance with the law. It wasn't anything wrong. But the question is, what about on the Sabbath day? So they're they're doing this, and the disciples, as we understand from what the Lord said, were not in violation of a Sabbath law. They were not doing business to earn money. They were not threshing. They were not harvesting. They were not using a sickle. Uh, They were in eating to keep on living and to enjoy the fruit of God's bounty. Now, just get that in your mind because sometimes I think it's easy for us to say, we come to verse 2 and we read, and we just kind of assume that the Pharisees are correct about the lawlessness of what the Lord and His disciples were doing. Like they know some nuance of the law that maybe we don't because we're not experts in Deuteronomy or Leviticus or something. They were not correct about that. So the Pharisees saw the disciples doing this and they complained. It says, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The first problem with this is that the Pharisees were shadowing the Lord, looking for something to complain about. They were following him, tailing him, surveilling him, stalking him. In other words, they were meddling him. To meddle means to interfere in something that is not one's concern. And I want to take this opportunity just to run the rabbit trail a little bit on meddling because we see them doing that here. That's the first problem. The second problem is, is just as serious. But um, you know, I've found when I studied this a little bit, an interesting historical fact, God told Israel not to meddle with the Edomites or the Ammonites. He said, I haven't given you any of their land. So don't mess with them. Just pass on by. It's not yours. It's not your business, uh, not your affair. Just move along. They were not to concern themselves with those nations. That's Deuteronomy chapter 2. And then we have some other examples. Um, Joash, King Joash in 2 Kings 14, his heart was lifted up in pride, and he meddled with the northern kingdom against the advice of Israel's king. And what happened? They lost the battle that he wanted to start. Josiah, a very odd kind of situation, made the same kind of mistake with Pharaoh Necho, 2 Chronicles 35. I'll just turn there to that one, and uh, we can just briefly look at that. 2 Chronicles, way towards the end, chapter 35, verse... 21 uh so i'll start in verse 20 after all this when josiah had prepared the temple Necho, king of egypt came up to fight against Carchemish by the euphrates so he's pa- really passing by the the nation um you know just one note uh, duane it sounds to me like i'm getting that pop a little bit extra feedback there maybe turn the gain down just a little bit on number four that's not been usual lately um so he's going through there to the Euphrates, Pharaoh Necho is, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? So the Pharaoh of Egypt was trying to say, look, just get out of the way. I don't have anything to do with you. I'm not, I'm not come against you this day, but against the house which I have, with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God who is with me lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. And so Josiah passed away. And he was lamented because he had been generally a good king, but this was stupid on his part. He didn't listen, his heart was lifted up, and he should have just kept his own business. We don't know that he asked the Lord about this first. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, if he had, he would have been told, no, don't do that. Um, Proverbs 26, Proverbs 26, verse 17. Why don't you follow along and lay your eyes on that text of Scripture, if you would, please. Proverbs 26 and verse number uh, 17. It says, "He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears." Have you done that before? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's not talking about you know scratching uh, you know Fido on the ears that he li- in a way he likes. It's you know grab him by the ears. Uh, that's not going to be comfortable. So, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own. So obviously, the wisdom of Solomon here is don't pass by and meddle in things that don't belong to you. Um, and the, the scriptures are full of, of, of ideas about this, and I'll just read a few more of them to you. There's 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 11, talk about meddling in other people's affairs. You just save yourself a lot of trouble if you just uh, keep to yourself. Second Thessalonians three eleven, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. Busybodies. First Timothy chapter five, verse thirteen. It talks about this, uh, speaking of younger widows and uh, them having condemnation because they cast off their first faith or their first pledge. Besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things that they ought not. So obviously that was a problem, a particular problem in that era. And then you have First Peter chapter 4, verse number 15. God's word says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Some people today spend a lot of time concerning themselves with the business of others that 's all social media almost. Maybe not all of it, but I 'm saying it just by a hyperbolic language to get the point across and then there's still the old fashioned gossip you know with the new technology undergirding it and supporting the transmission of information there's Hunting around for heresy and others—that's kind of like what the Pharisees were doing here. They're spending time keeping up with all the latest news about other churches and schools and Christians and neighbors and people and the you know media and, and famous people and all of that sort of thing. Spending a lot of time concerning yourself with the matters of others is not in accord with the Scriptures. Here, First Thessalonians 4:11 tells us basically. Uh, Mind our own business. <laughs> first Thessalonians four eleven says this. You also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. God will take care of his business. His business. But not before the time. The second problem, that's the first problem. The first problem is these Pharisees and scribes are intervening, or meddling in affairs that don't don't concern them and and matters that are outside of their scope. The second problem is the Pharisees were simply wrong about the law. The disciples were not harvesting. They were not threshing. They were not violating the law. And as the case often with busybodies, they're misinformed. They have a little piece of information here and a little piece of information there, and they put this big story together, and they know it all except they're wrong. And this is why the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 4 5, don't judge anything before the time, because you simply don't have enough information, you don't have enough wisdom, you don't have enough holiness, you don't have enough mercy and compassion like God does to take all the factors into account and judge properly a concern that does not belong to you. Outsiders often pass judgment if they do not know the situation thoroughly. The Pharisees' misinformation here is that they thought the disciples were doing something unlawful, but it was actually something untraditional. The Pharisees looked at them and said, well, that's not our tradition, but that has nothing to do with the law. Okay? They, 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 they elevated their tradition to the place of the law and then harshly judged others who did not follow the same tradition as if they were terrible criminals, And here's the irony of it. They, in their minds, excused themselves for trying to kill Jesus while they attacked Jesus for a non-violation of just eating a snack. This is the depravity on full display of these Pharisees. I I found this in a a commentary by Geldenheis, one I've mentioned before who said this, quote, the doctors of the law laid down literally thousands of subtle provisions of what was commanded and especially of what was forbidden on the Sabbath. It's interesting. I just am thinking now of a little picture that I saw, a meme, I guess they call it, with uh, some words in it that talked about how, uh, this is Madison speaking in a context of U.S. politics, that it, it avails the people nothing if the laws are so voluminous and written in a way that you can't understand, right? A 2,000-page law, that's ridiculous. It should be one page. And it should be clear what the intention of that law is. Uh, You know, you have to, as they say, pass it before you know what's in it. That's just foolishness utter foolishness and the same thing was happening here you see the tendency of the human heart to lay out these kind of m- massive volumes of instruction and keep you from doing this and put this fence up here and do all that crazy stuff to try to keep you in line try to control you okay and i don't want your minds to go now just to the politi- the political side i want to talk about the could i say the religious part of life the traditions that these guys set up and they, they put them in a way out there, in a way that was like law, their, their Talmud, their, their religious teachings. Jesus answers them with a rebuke. As I head back to Luke, Jesus answered and said, Have you not even read? Have you not even read? You know, when you're a student in a particular area of study, especially advanced area of study, this I've, I've heard this before even from the, um, the lips of one who is an advisor to me in my Ph.D. program, you know, it, you have to read. You have to read the literature, okay? Don't be ignorant of the literature on the subject, whatever the subject is that you're talking about. So if you deign to stand there and tell Jesus, that he's in sin and his disciples are in sin, you better have read the material upon which you're basing your judgment and know it well. And so Jesus basically says, look, you need to go back and do your homework. Okay? You haven't done the right thing here at all. He uses what we might consider a rather obscure section of the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 through 6, 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, listen as I read. It says, David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to him, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know the thing about the business that I send you or what I've commanded you. And uh, he's directed his men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. There was a need for food for him and his men to survive. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And then they lay some stipulation out here that, you know, the men that eat this need to be somewhat clean, not unclean. This was really only for the priest's. To eat. So the priest, in the end here, gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So this showbread or bread of presence, remember in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was, there was the, you know, the, the uh, veil and there was the, bre- the table and there was the bread there and there was the uh, candelabra, the menorah lighting that area of the tabernacle and so on. And so they, they, what they would do is they'd put the bread there, 12 loaves, 12 tribes of Israel, stack them up in two stacks of six, and they would keep that there for the week. then they would swap it out for new. Okay? And the priests were to eat that bread. It was for the priests. But God here did not charge David with a sin because he had to use what was on hand in what we call an exigent situation, a pressing need that had arisen. Mercy and need overrode blind obedience to the ceremonial law. Okay, suppose you have a guy who comes in crawling up the steps of the the temple or into the tabernacle and says, I haven't had anything to eat for three days. I'm about to die, you know, or a week. And the priests say, well, no, all we've got here is the showbread. You can't touch that and let him die as opposed to giving him the bread that they have. They are able to eat after it is done on the, the, the table there and it comes to their possession. They're able to eat it. Can they share it with somebody who's dying or who needs food? Of course. Now, just a side note here. The bread of presence, or what's called the show bread, was not not an offering to the deity to satisfy his hunger. Okay? Pagan religions had that notion in in that they were offering something to God, as if God needs the, the support of humans to supply his nourishment needs. It's totally backwards. The bread pictures God's provision of bread for the people of Israel, all 12 tribes. Okay? So it's, it's, people get these ideas. We, we don't supply for God. God supplies for us. So make sure you have the order of that correct. Now, Jesus expected that the Pharisees would have read that portion of Scripture that we just read, 1 Samuel 21, and from it would have gained a better understanding of such matters as the Sabbath that these laws are not meant to penalize or to put people under a slavery kind of relationship. Blind obedience to the law without regard for mercy or kindness or preservation of life is not God's way. Disobedience, of course, is not God's way either, but God is not concerned about disobedience to a complicated man-made system of traditions that was set up by the Pharisees Also, it was not acceptable to discard the worship of God uh, in favor of deeds of mercy. So there's a balance here. We can't just say, oh, look what Jesus did. So we've got to turn all of our attention to deeds of mercy on the Sabbath. No, he's not saying that. Sabbath is for worshiping God. It's for rest. It's for focusing on the Lord and so on in ancient Israel. But it is also for doing deeds of mercy if they are necessary. The end of the interaction of the account, uh, Matthew 12, 7 records this, and this is further rebuke here. Listen to this. Speaking about going and doing your homework, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, in the parallel passage, Jesus says, But if you had uh, known this, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And then the Lord said, Go and learn what this means. You know, again, he asks, so have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those with him and so on? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? You need to go learn your Bible a little bit better. What a rebuke. They were to learn what it means in the Bible when it says in Hosea 6.6, 6, the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. He desires the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. If they had understood, they would have been not so quick to condemn people who were without guilt. Now, as for me in my house, we're going to take the interpretation of Jesus over the interpretation of the Pharisees. How about that? Okay, That's what we'll do. Any any day of the week, we'll do that. But the bottom line that the Lord brings us to is actually, uh, this is I realized, I kind of read over this before, but as I studied this, I thought, man, this is powerful. He said to them, verse 5, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. He's, he's, he is on top of, over the man-made traditions. He's over the Sabbath itself in a you know, kind of authority, structure, organizational chart way here. But this is more than that. This is more than him saying that I'm, I'm in charge of the Sabbath. He is saying, "I am the Lord of the Sabbath." That is, he is making a bold claim to deity here. Who gave the Sabbath? Honor the Sabbath day. Hallow the Sabbath, day keep it holy. God said front, in six days, created the heavens and the earth, the seventh day rested. You too. you're weak will be structured in sevens, six days of work, one day of rest, because God said so in the Ten Commandments. No, no um, what do you want to say? No phenomena in nature sets the time of the week. The month, the lunar cycle. The year, the solar, you know, the rotation around the sun. But the week, the law of God is what sets the week. And... God gave that Sabbath law. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one that gave the Sabbath. I set the Sabbath law. It arose from my example of finishing the creation in six days. Remember, the Bible says, without him, nothing was made that was made. He's the creator of all things. And so he is the one who codified the Sabbath law in Exodus 20, 8 through 11, as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus is that Lord who gave the law of Sabbath observance. He is the ultimate interpreter of that law, obviously, since he gave it, not the Pharisees. But just read this bold statement of his deity in verse number 5. The Son of Man is also Lord. Down to verse 11, it says, "...but they were filled with rage," this is after another incident, but it's the same idea, "...and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus." So now there's a second Sabbath controversy, and that is in verses 6 through 10. The Lord encountered a disabled man, and I, I just have to stop and, and just think about that for a moment. Think of that. A man who is disabled. We used to say handicapped, challenged. His hand is, his hand is folded up. Why? why? Why did that? Well, I mean, you could speculate only. You know, he had a stroke. He had some kind of palsy, we might say, that caused his hand to be withered. The, the, the word withered is an appropriate figure of speech. It was kind of dried up. It was curled up. It was bent. It was unable to move like you would want your hand to move. The Pharisees were present. That was fine. They were there at the synagogue. But notice what it says. The scribes and Pharisees, verse 7, watched him closely. This is a surveillance word here, okay? This is, uh, you know, in in the modern era, what they would have done is they would have had all of their security cameras trained on Jesus to see what he did. And they'd be sitting in the back room with the, you know, the screen and all the different views, and they're like, look look at what he's doing. That's not, you know, when you're in a mindset of, I'm looking at what so-and-so is doing to try to find fault, that's, that's back to that meddling thing again. You need to knock it off, man. You need to focus on yourself. You've got plenty of faults in yourself to deal with. They were watching. They were spies. They were still on the lookout trying to pin a violation on Jesus. Uh, and, and, and they cared more about doing that. Listen, <laughs> these are the Pharisees. I, I suppose some leaders in this congregation, men, who looked at the situation before them and said, it's more important for us to try to get Jesus than it is for us to help the poor man with the withered hand. What kind of wickedness is that, to think that way? Here you have a man in your midst. Have you offered him anything? Have you tried to help him? I mean, I believe that the withering is probably beyond human repair. You know, They certainly didn't have the medical technology back then to fix it and probably had been fixed in that position for a while and it just was going to be that way for the rest of his life. We, even we today probably couldn't fix it. Otherwise, there would be no people with withered hands today after a stroke, right? But there are. And so this was a, no human help was able to help this man, but they could ease his way. They could be kind to him. They could think about him, and Jesus knew their thoughts. He had that kind of omniscient, divine, extrasensory perception that is not the weird kind of ESP that people talk about, but he knew what was going on in the hearts and minds of these people. With this knowledge, he then set up a specific test for the Pharisees to show them how far they would go in their ridiculous quest to find a violation a quest in which they cared nothing for a suffering man who was one of their own flock in the synagogue. They were consumed with hatred instead of consumed with grace and mercy and worship. They viewed helping the disabled man on the Sabbath as worse than their intentions of murdering an innocent man, Jesus. Now, Jesus asked this question, uh, is it lawful to do good? to do evil, to save life, or to destroy. And then it says, when he looked around at them all, okay, picture the scene, there's pin drop silence, crickets in the synagogue. The people who are with Jesus, who who know righteousness, are like, yeah, he's got a good point there. (laughs) And the other ones wouldn't answer because they were wicked or ashamed if they were coming to some kind of conviction. In Mark chapter 3.5, it says Jesus looked at them with anger. And he was grieved because of the hardness of their hearts. That's the dual kind of reaction that we too can have when it comes to people who are of this sort. I said dual reaction. Follow me now. Sometimes we can be indignant about people who are wicked. We can be angry at them. What about the compassion? What about the grieving? What about the sadness that they are lost and dying in sin? Are you just so angry you wish them to go to hell? Or are you more like, more like God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Dual, dual reaction there. Make sure you have both of those. Compassionate love and also holiness at one and the same time. Jesus had that. Uh, a mixture of anger and sorrow. These people are lost in need of help, but they're still culpable for their guilt. So he asked the question in preparation for this test. Nobody answered, but answers obviously, you know, what he intended us to get. It's lawful to do good and to save life on the Sabbath. If somebody's sick and in need of ministry of mercy, you give it to them, whether it's midnight on Wednesday or 11 a.m. on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders had been blindly accepting of the teaching that they had been blindly given, that you just, this is how you do the Sabbath and that's it. No mercy, no compassion, no anything. Just obey. And some of them probably were ensnared by their political alliances, so they couldn't speak up. You know how it is? You're like, oh boy, if I say something. <laughs> if I say something, they'll know that I'm not exactly with them. And I can't break ranks. And so everybody just clams up because of that peer pressure to, to hold the line. And the Lord then looks at them, and I hope convicts some of them. Some of them were convicted by his spirit, I trust. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. Stretch that hand out, and there it was, just as whole as the other one. Obviously, this took no work for Jesus to do. Was it wrong for him to say the word stretch out your hand? You know, was it a lot of laborious work for him to do that? No, it was just like he created the universe with his words. It was divine work, of course, but hardly work on a human level. Remember in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, the Father has been working until now, and I'm also working. You know what he did, how he, how he said that? The, the Pharisees understood this guy's claiming to be God. He's saying, like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm working right along with my father. And he is. (laughs) So they were enraged at Jesus. Wrath at a man who miraculously healed one who probably had been in their assembly for years, had had a stroke, couldn't use his hand, was disabled, couldn't work, and they just throw this man to to the trash bin. They don't care. Supposedly it would have been Better if Jesus had done the miracle on the next day than on that Saturday. Wait till Sunday, one of the, one of the leaders of the synagogue said, there's six days on which you ought to work and, and the seventh is for rest. Come on another day to get healed. <laughs> what hard hearts. They were so invested in their tradition, they were willing to kill him for those traditions. Jesus is still Lord of the Sabbath today. He can heal someone on that day regardless of what tradition you believe. The Jewish person can pull an ox out of a pit on the Sabbath day, Luke 14, 5. He can even participate in circumcision of a child on the eighth day if that happens to fall on a Saturday and not be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Works of mercy never break the Sabbath. Now let me conclude with a couple of important notes. Colossians 2.16 indicates to us that because we're not to allow others to judge us in regard to various holy days and things, including the Sabbath, let me read it, Colossians 2.16, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, or Sabbaths, plural. There were multiple different kinds of Sabbaths, the normal weekly one and then special ones throughout the year with the Jewish uh, holiday calendar, but uh, we're not to allow others to judge us, nor are we to judge ourselves. In this sense, Sabbath observance is not required, and listen, has never been required for Christians. Okay, Now, if you come out of a tradition which says that Sunday is the new Sabbath, let me just rock your boat a little bit. Sunday is not the new Christian Sabbath, because the Sabbath is always Saturday. That's what it means. Shabbat is the seventh day. Okay? It cannot move to another day of the week. Now, that's not to say that I'm excusing a Christian from taking some time to rest each week, nor excusing a Christian from regular corporate worship during the week. But I'm, Those are necessities. Those are what we need. I mean, that's just clear. But Sunday does not demand rest and cessation of all activity and blind adherence to a past tradition. Sunday can be a day for doing good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Now, some of us elevate Sunday beyond other days of the week. And others of us say every day is alike. What does Romans 14, uh, verse 5 say about that matter? It says, let everybody be convinced, fully convinced in their own minds. You want to hold that on about Sunday, fine. But don't lay that judgment on somebody else. We as a church have selected, because of the first day of the week, our theology following the example of the Scriptures, the convenience of it, uh, and the fact that we know that we need to gather together corporately to worship, have chosen Sunday as a day of worship, and that's good. We're fully convinced that that's right and in accordance with Scripture and all of that. But we know we cannot cease from worship. We know we need rest, and we also know that we're a Christian every day. Not just Sundays. Now, traditions, drawing to a close here, traditions, even ancient ones, may be good or maybe not good. They may make their practitioners seem religious, but adherence to them over the words of God incurs God's deep displeasure. Listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 7 In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. All too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Clear commands. He gives some examples there. If you want to read in Mark chapter seven, you know, honor your father and mother. Well, but if we, you know, designate all of our money to the temple, then we don't have to use that to support our parents in their old age. It is kind of this, you know sophistry approached and designating and putting things in bins and boxes and separating them so you don't have to be obedient to God. It's all a bunch of nonsense. We must obey the commandments of the Lord. And Jesus reminds us finally of the need for sustaining life and doing good. Even on days of worship, we cannot become so self-centered in our worship that we ignore others around us, like the guy with the withered hand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this has been a salutary for our souls, that it has helped us to recognize perhaps if we have a little tradition that has um, gotten the better of us and become uh, put in a place which is higher than the word of God, Lord, if somebody has grown up in a more traditional or liturgical style of church or has, has been told you need to do this uh, for confession of sins or you need to do that or this ritual or whatever, Lord, help them to evaluate that in light of what we've spoken here and compare uh, what the tradition is to what scripture teaches. And if there's any conflict, discard the tradition and keep the scripture, not the other way around. Lord, thank you for uh, allowing us to understand this idea that there is an important, very important place for mercy and not just for ritual. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.